For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Long Form. Good morning. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. The whole different vibe since we started doing these morning intros. More pep? Yeah, well, you're in that, like, full jogging gear with the headband each time. (laughs) Who's on the show this week? Uh, This week I talked to Mishka Shubali. Uh, He has a book coming out called uh, I Swear I'll Make It Up to You. It's a memoir. Uh, I talked to him about that. I also wanted to talk to him about Kindle Singles, which is where a lot of his previous work of the last few years has appeared. uh, And he is, like, the star of Kindle Singles. He's he's kind of the... the, the Breakout star, like the 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 first guy who made a lot of money selling Kindle singles. I think that's probably a fair assessment. Yeah, um, and it, I think it it probably led to this book. And sorry, I to, to, sorry to be crass there. Yeah, you're all about <laughs> money, Aaron. Yeah, I don't know what's up with that. Did you guys uh, talk about exactly how much money he made from Kindle singles? Did you get like a, a figure? Did it? Did it was it like uh, buy a house money? I didn't go into that. Although uh, he does even talk about it in the book itself. So he he recounts all the way up until today, sort of like how he got to this point. Uh, he struggled with some alcohol and drug addiction. He was a musician. He's, uh, he's just a really interesting guy. He actually has an album out as well, same time as the book. He's doing a dual tour. If you're doing a tour, you're going to want to keep the people who are fans of you uh, aware of that tour. You need an email newsletter, and there's no better place to get one than with MailChimp. They are our sponsor. Over 8 million businesses rely on them. I think your business should, too. Thank you, MailChimp. Here's Evan with Mishka Shubali. Mishka Shubali, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Thank you. I'm I'm always obsessed when I'm interviewing people who have a book coming out, whether or not uh, I'm catching you when you've already done a bunch of interviews for the book and you've heard every question that could possibly be asked, or if I'm catching you on the front end when like every question that I ask will be fresh. You're uh, you're ahead of the curve. You, you're getting uh, you'll get all the cliches for the first time here. Oh, I'm, fantastic! I'm, 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 I'll be hitting you with uh, with new tropes. <laughs> it's like. Uh, Working out new material. You're like a comic. Yeah, Just, yeah. I'll be ironing out the kinks tonight. Sitting on this table is uh, a copy of. Uh, would you call this your memoir? I guess it is your memoir. Basically, I mean, yeah. it starts at the beginning. Yeah, it comes it, up till now. Yeah, it's the uh, it's the true story of my horrible, horrible life. Yeah, <laughs> and I was trying to think about where to start with this. I mean, the natural place to start maybe is to like give a little bit of background on your life and sort of. Uh, I want. I mean, the thing I'm really interested in is how you how you ended up writing the book, because uh, I know a little bit about it, and it's totally fascinating. But talk a little bit about where you grew up. I was born in Canada. We moved away when I was eight. Uh, my father is a rocket scientist. which Literally. Is, yes, which is an interesting. I, as a kid, it didn't strike me as odd. And that, you know, now that I'm older, I'm like, holy crap, that's, that's weird. So we moved to uh, Los Alamos, New Mexico, uh, the birthplace of nuclear warfare, uh-huh. and then moved from there to New Hampshire, which I still have a long-standing grudge against. Uh, when I was 15, I left after two years of high school to start a college-level program at Simons Rock College of Bard in uh, in Massachusetts. And when I was there, there was a school shooting. And it seemed like 
a lot of difficult things happen to you uh, at the same time around that time. Let's say one one of the uh, one of the negative reviews I got on the book, you know, was that you know, it's, oh man, it's just it's just like a litany of hard times. It's just you know, sort of one like re- you know, really terrible thing after another. And I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like I apologize that I had a weird, crappy life, or that there was a glut of uh, unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, it, it was a bummer, dude. Like, I mean, how else can I say it? You know, yeah. December fourteenth, nineteen ninety two. A uh, student at my school got a, a cheap Chinese SKS assault rifle and shot six people and killed two of them. One of whom was a classmate, and one of whom was a teacher. And he had enough ammunition for all of us, and uh, it was terrifying. And then I went home on zero sleep and found out that my parents were going to divorce. Yeah. That set off a spiral that took me like 17 years to get out of. You know, it's it's sort of like, you know, somebody with, you know, with incredibly advanced scoliosis where it's like, oh, my back hurts all the time. And people are like, well, it's your scoliosis. It's like, no, that's that's just that's just who I am. That's just, you know, that's just part of me. That, I don't. That's not why my back hurts. That's my identity. That's who I am. Not that I was a perfect kid before that stuff went down, but when that happened, it really uh, warped me, man. And you you write about how being a sort of good kid and a, and a smart kid and that later on, that comes back to haunt you in these different times. Like it keeps coming back up that like your potential is unfulfilled and you're like beating yourself up in these different ways because you haven't become anything because you originally were, had all this promise. Well, Simon's Rock at that time served, it, it's, it played two roles. You know, one was for, you know, smart kids uh-huh. uh, who excelled academically. And another was for kids whose behavioral problems were so advanced that they, they, it didn't look like they were going to make it through high school. Uh, I see. I was a check mark in both of those boxes. <laughs> I, you know, there's always been this sort of d- duality that I've struggled with where I was doing really good things and really bad things at the same time. It's ironic for me to look back at it because, you know, the book that we're talking about is the the exact book that I never wanted to write. Huh. And for most of my life in New York, the part of me that I was trying to kill off was was that potential part. I was like, just let just let that die. Just let that go away. Just let me be a dumb construction worker who who drinks his wages and and let me just do this menial job and be okay with it. Hoping that things would change, that things would get better. That it struck me that that's what was making me miserable. Yeah. You know, was that I I had a hope that man, I remember I was working a construction gig in the Bloomingdale's building. And so before the store opened, uh, I was riding the elevator up with like the shop girls who worked at the, you know, the perfume counter and, and whatnot. And like they, you know, I was in the elevator and then they sort of got in and like, like gave me a sideways glance and like, then sort of like sniffed at me and like looked straight ahead. And I was like, yo, I have dreams and shit. <laughs> I'm, I'm a human being, you know, and. And then I realized that that, you know, that that just made me the worst sort of stereotype ever, you know, ever the alcoholic slash junkie construction worker who dreams of a new life. But it actually, it worked out, man. Yeah. I still can't believe it. You just have such an interesting path to becoming a writer. I mean, one, just one aspect of it was you sort of are working all these jobs, various jobs, uh, construction all these different things and then you you enroll at the university of colorado and you want to take film classes and then the film classes in the afternoon and evening where you can't take them because you're a like a fry cook or a line cook at sonic yeah they call it a line cook at sonic i'm oh god this humiliation upon humiliation (laughs) you know yes i was actually i was but then you take writing classes that's what i was trying to get to is like that's how you ended up in writing classes was because of that conflict one of my gigs now is teaching, and so I have to try and communicate to my students how I succeeded as a writer. And what I tell them is I just, I failed at everything else. I was pushed to become a writer sort of against my will. You know, I did everything that, everything in my power to just be an alcoholic burnout who, you know, who, who died at 29. And I failed at that, too. <laughs> This is this is sort of a piece with the book. I mean, the book is so... You mentioned that negative review. I mean, 
the book is that sometimes it's relentless. I mean, it's yeah. definitely, there were times when I felt like, uh, I'm going to put this down for a minute, uh, because it doesn't stop. Like it, it, it's, it's all there. When you sat down to write this stuff, first of all, what was your sort of relationship to, to memory? How did you kind of like recall the detail of these times? The, you know, the time in my life that I'm writing about here, when I think about it, I think about, you know, watching a, a boxer in the ninth or 10th round where he's up against the ropes and he's taking so many hits that he can't fall down where the hits are the only thing that's keeping him upright. And if the other guy would just back off that he would crumple, mm-hmm. you know, but it, 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 that was the time in my life where it was just, that was the only thing that, that held me upright. Um, I have an eerily good memory. I mean, I think my earliest memory, I'm like, was from like 18 months. I remember, or I think I remember everything incredibly well. I mean, one of the, one of the things I learned in the process of writing this book is that we imagine memory to be something that uh, preserves the reality we've experienced, but what memory really does is it transforms it. Um, To remember something is to alter it. You know, and it's the the more we the more each time we remember it, it changes a little bit and it it alters a little bit. So, yeah, everything in this book is unfortunately true to my memory. But, um, you know, as as we we see in the last third of the book, I, I discovered that so many things that I recalled to be true were in fact radically different mm-hmm. than than I had remembered them. Mm-hmm. For a writer, I wrote remarkably little when I was drinking. You know, when I was a 19-year-old, you know, drunken shithead, I think I told people, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm a writer. A writer. You know, and no, I was a drinker. And now, I mean, there's physical evidence that I'm a writer and people are like, you know, what do you do? And I was like, well, well I guess I write yeah. stuff. <laughs> But you sort of capture that when you first moved to New York, this sort of mix of kind of uh, self-loathing and ambition and arrogance of someone who moves to New York and sort of wants to make it and thinks they can make it. So at some point when you came here, you you flirted with the idea of, I can do this. Yeah, yeah. I um, I think when I was in fifth or sixth grade, I wrote a story and, and uh, made my teacher cry. And... I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I think that was that was a like a formative experience for me to move someone. I, th- I still think the greatest compliment I've ever gotten from anybody on my work was I told a story at the Moth one night, and afterwards a guy came up to me, probably early seventies, an old man, and he put his hand on my shoulder and looked me in the eye, and then he just turned and walked away, and that means so much to me. You know, that I was able to convey my experience to him with enough power that he couldn't articulate a response, but he had to just come up and put a hand on me, make some kind of contact, just say, like, I get it, you know, and then and then leave. And that was enough. And he wasn't going to complicate it with words. Let's talk a little bit about the period. I mean, it seems like there was a period in which you sort of like almost broke out as a musician like you were not writing much but you were in bands and you went on the road you went on the road for a year you put together an album yeah how close did you feel like you came at that time to breaking through to some other side when it came to music i studied with uh, lawrence weschler at columbia uh-huh. and uh he told me once he said he said dude you never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity <laughs> And yeah, I feel like there, I, there were so many close calls, but you know, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, both with, um, you know, with drug abuse and with success as an artist, you never know how close you came to crossing that line to either death or breaking through Uh until it's too late until you've already crossed over. You know, I was in a band called beat the devil and we were, you know, I think our last, you know, one of our last gigs was, you know, we played in front of 3,000 people at South Street Seaport and like killed and it was awesome, you know, and then my car got towed the next day. And, you know, you have, you have these humble reminders that you're still, um, you're still a low life. And, you know, and I opened up for Doug Stanhope. He, uh, I was high on morphine one night in, uh, in 2007 and he called 
And he was like, yeah, I'm a big fan, you know, and I, I, I was like, who is this? You know, I, I assumed it was a prank, but you know, we got to be friends and mutual admiration. And then he brought me out on tour and I was like, you know, playing to the biggest crowds of my life. And, uh, and then it all sort of just went away. There's a tough line in the book where you say something like, and then the, the, the circuits or the train just like packs up and leaves town and you're just, yeah. you're still there. Yeah. The, car- the carnival, the carnival never ends, yeah. but it will leave your town and if you, you know, it will leave you behind. And, and that's happened to me more than once, you know, and that's hard. Yeah. Because you're thinking like, how am I going to get home? <laughs> just fundamental, just basic things like that, you know? I really found myself, uh, even though I, I sort of knew the ending, I guess, because I had met you before, but uh, just thinking like this time, like this time is going to dig himself out. Like this is the one. <laughs> and then it wasn't. And it just like... I, I even knowing the ending, I thought, well, that must happen like 50 pages from now. And then I get 50 pages and I'd be like, this is the one. And then it wasn't. I really like strung my losing streak out for as long as I could. I really just stretched it out and enjoyed it. You know, a nice luxurious, just cruise around the bottom. I kept thinking that things were going to change too. And then, and that's the thing too, is that then when things finally changed for me, I, I didn't believe it, you know, and I, um, when Blum first approached me about writing for Amazon, I, I, I told him point blank, this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Hey, this is your other host, Aaron, and I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, Audible. What does Audible have? They have over 180,000 audiobooks. These are books that you can listen to on your iPhone, iPad, Android, or Windows phone. And the best part is, or if you're me, the best part is, I like to read ebooks. I also like to listen to them. With WhisperSync, you can switch back and forth between reading a book on your Kindle and listening to it. That is just amazing. So anyway, I want you to go to audiblepodcast.com slash longform. It's a special offer for our listeners. You'll get 30 free days and a free book. Again, audiblepodcast.com slash longform for 30 free days and a free audiobook. Thank you, Audible. Here's Evan back with Mishka Shubali. Well, let's go back a bit. So Dave Blum who's now the editor of Kindle Singles at Amazon. He was the editor of the New York Press. Right. So when you started doing sort of uh, a little bit of writing for for press, it seemed like that was a place where you first found a home. So how did that come about? Somebody was doing a documentary about Beat the Devil, and I went and uh, and we had the sort of premiere for the documentary. So we went, and the band was on just dying on its last legs. And we went to this documentary and, and watched it, and... Shilpa, the singer, was talking about how I was a writer and, you know, when we met and how excited she was to have another writer in the band. And watching the documentary, I I thought, maybe I was a writer then, but now I'm just a druggie. And maybe if I wasn't, maybe the band wouldn't be falling apart. And then that show went off the rails. That night went off the rails. That was basically it for us as a band. And then the next day I was, you know, trudging to work, you know, sorely hungover and saw New York Press had an open call for writers. And I was like, just in the New York Press. It just yeah. Said, yeah. It said, you know, yeah. Submit. And I was like, do or die, man. Like, are you a writer or aren't you? Like, what do you want to do? Do you want to just sit on a bar stool for the rest of your life? Or do you have a dream to, to actually do something? So I, so I sent in this story I'd written about one night where I accidentally stabbed myself in the arm and, and wound up in an ER under a fake name getting stitched up. And Blum wrote back right away and he was like, you know, my pitch letter to him, he said, was so unhinged that he's preserved it. And now when he teaches at Columbia, it's, it's, he trots out a collection of pitch letters to try and get students to, to see which pitch letters actually led to a publication. And they've never p- chosen mine. <laughs> so you think he's just throwing that as the token lunatic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was... What did you say? I think I described myself as a footnote to a footnote in New York rock history. There were a couple of other things that probably don't bear repeating, <laughs> but, 
But anyway, so he, he responded. He said, you know, I don't know if this story is right for us, but I noticed, you know, and this is what, 2007. I noticed, you know, on your MySpace blog, this you've been writing about this drug you've been doing. Would you like to write a larger piece about that? And uh, and I said, all right. So I, when I came home from my construction gig. I made myself another cup of coffee. And then I sat down and wrote it just first word, then the next word, all the way to the last word, and then hit send and sent it to him just like that. And the next the next week, it appeared on the cover of the New York Press with no edits, and I was a writer. And uh, I I can't emphasize to you how central that was to my survival. When that happened, I sort of went to my job list, and it, you know it said, you know, I looked to my calendar, and it said, you know, commit suicide, and I like crossed it off and moved it like two weeks later, <laughs> because I was like, well, now I'm a writer now, you know, and then that led to a series of pieces with the New York Press. Were all of those personal pieces about you and your life? Yeah, yeah, I wrote about. Um, you know, I, I wrote the piece about the drug that I was doing, Opana, which I cannot recommend to anyone. You, you pointed out in the book, the piece kind of ends, that New York Press piece ends. I went back and found that one, actually, making it sound like you you were done with it. And then you say in the book that you sort of like celebrated that success of that piece by going out and getting some more. Yes, Evan, <laughs> that is correct. I did that stupid thing. That's Yes, that is exactly what I did. These scenes are so raw like scenes of you doing things that you look back on and regret or look back on and think were a good time but are now done with but i mean there are parts where you say like i was an asshole like i couldn't remember a time when i wasn't an asshole and when you sit down to write them i feel like there must be some strong temptation to just like tweak some of the things to just say like okay maybe i'll just leave that bit out because I mean, it, it casts a pretty harsh light on you as a person during that time. Yeah, yeah. My allegiance is not to moving units. My allegiance is to the truth. And if that means that I look like an asshole, I was an asshole, you know? And I I have a huge, you know, bone to pick with a lot of, I mean, it's, it's mostly celebrity memoirists who will scan right over their philandering or the details of their drug abuse and how they how it hurt their families and hurt their you know hurt their friends and the shitty petty animal things that they did to serve their addiction and um what's central to to our survival and to our success as writers is to have that ideal reader a reader who who both expects the most from you as a writer and also understands you as a writer and uh, and Blum was that reader for me. So when I was writing the Kindle singles and then when I was writing this book, in my mind, I was writing to him. This is a confidential message, a confession that I would show to him and to no one else, hmm. that no one else would see this. This was a private thing. So I had to trick myself. I, you know, I've been accused of, you know, the anonymous commenters on Amazon of like fabricating stuff, you mm. know, and my, you know, my response is always, if I was fabricating stuff, I would make myself look a little better. <laughs> you know, I would, I would not look like such a creep. And, and the other, you know, criticism I get from people is like, man, this guy is such a creep. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, I, I put that all in there, you know, I mean, alcoholism is ugly and drug addiction is ugly it's appalling for us as human beings to witness another human in free fall where their humanity has been scraped away and it's just that that sort of screaming id of like you know give me drugs or if that's not available like you know give me alcohol and if that's not available give me sex and if that's not available give me food give me you know give me fucking anything so i don't feel like exactly what i feel like right now you know, I, I, I see myself as a reporter, you know, I mean, trying to report on this subject honestly. And, and the, the subject is all the stupid, stupid things that I did. When I read it also, it, I mean, it doesn't gloss over the fact that it was also like a lot of fun and crazy and just crazy fun stories. Like that's a it's a strange thing to mix like the horror of the addiction portion of it with like not denying the fact that those were great times in other ways. 
Oh, absolutely. And like, it seems like I have a bone to pick with everyone. But another bone that I have to pick with people is- <laughs> This is know, the place, yeah, get them all out. <laughs> you know, as addicts, you know, who talk about their lives. Oh, it was so horrible. It was so terrible. Yeah, you know, 35 years of drug addiction. Dude, if you were doing it for 35 years, there were some good times too. You know, and I remember, and, and you know, and that's the thing is I remember, I remember being on tour with Beat the Devil and like uh, the drummer and I would roll in for sound check at five o'clock, like f- suss out the deal with drink tickets and find out who was going to get us the Coke and then like just sit on the same bar stool for most of 14 hours. And it was the most fucking fun I'd ever had in my life. And it was amazing. It was so great. And until the next morning and then you woke up and you were just casting around for a sharp object to to end it all because you felt so horrible and you know and at then at, through you know the course of the day as the events you know, like oh i can't believe i said that oh my god that was his sister ah oh, the fucking horrible things i did like mitch hedberg has a lot of uh you know had a lot of great lines about alcoholism and addiction you know and he said you know says you know that um you know, alcoholism is the only disease you can get yelled at for having. <laughs> but it's also the only disease where when you're having an acute attack, it's really fun. <laughs> and it's true. It's it's really true. You know, I mean, I um, I, I absolutely, I love drinking. I, I mean, I loved, uh, I loved waking up in bed and, and there being like a, like a cold Budweiser in reaching distance so I wouldn't have to get out of bed. And then like chewing a piece of gum would get the the gross like cigarette ash taste out of my mouth from the night, night before and chewing gum and drinking a cold Bud at the same time. It was sort of like a refreshing minty uh, energy, like my coffee, you know, like a great way to start the day or being on tour and uh, getting like a like a freezing cold 40 that was so cold that it hurt your hand and then making that shower as hot as you could stand it after like a 12 hour drive from like fucking El Paso to Albuquerque or something and going into the the shower in the motel six with this just freezing cold bottle of beer scalding hot shower and sucking it down and you it, you just felt like completely animal and completely divine I remember when I lived in Colorado once, you know, a friend's girlfriend was like trying to be helpful. I think I was 20 and, you know, she was, uh, you know, she said, you know, you drink so much wine, like, you know, why don't you take a course or something, you know, and like, you know, learn about wine. Or like, appre- like appreciate it properly or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I turned to her and I was like, I I have a simple pleasure in my life, you know, this gallon jug of Carlo Rossi that's basically grain alcohol, sugar, and food coloring. I don't want to know how bad it is. Like, th- this is this is a fragile pleasure in my life. Like, to do something that, like you're suggesting, that would destroy this for me. <laughs> why would you do that? Do you care about me at all? Like, why are you trying to hurt me? <laughs> this is just like when I was, when I was reading the book, I felt like I was at times just laughing out loud at things that then I felt like, oh, I shouldn't be laughing at this. This is not. Well, people say it's a dark book. And I, I mean, I, I think it's really funny. I mean, maybe I have a warped sense of humor, but like a lot of this stuff just, just, I mean, it struck me as, you know, I mean, it, it, it reflects to my mind state at the time and, you know, and, and the level of sort of nihilism and just the, the way that I, uh, like really welcomed negativity. Yeah. You know, one of my, one of my absolute favorite New York memories is like trudging home, you know, around this time of year, you know, January, February in New York coming home. Um, it was after like my birthday or something and I'd gone home with some girl in Manhattan and then I was trying to get home and, uh, I started coughing and I spit up something on the sidewalk that looked like a severed human finger in front of a couple of young parents pushing a stroller. And they looked at me with this just shock and horror and pity and fear. And 
there was a songbird singing in my heart, just seeing like their appalled faces, you know, and that, that, that bright, that's a lasting happy memory of New York for me. It's so terrible. Disturbing. That's very disturbing. Okay. Well, let's come back to Dave Blum. So you, you know, you wrote these things for New York press and then you ended up meeting up with him again when he had moved to Amazon and were you sober at that, by that point? Yeah. He invited me for lunch uh, or for breakfast one day at NoHo Star and, uh, and we met up and he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be doing this new thing at Amazon. Um, you should totally do it. I, I really think you can make a lot of money. And he said, oh, you know, we're going to be publishing, you know, content for the Kindle. And I was like, Dave. Number one, I don't know anybody who has one of those nerd pads. Number two, it'll never work. There's so much free content out there. Nobody's going to pay for anything. If they pay for anything, why would they ever pay for my stuff? So, I mean, if it works at all, it'll never work for me. And, you know, and besides, like, I'm sober now. I don't have a single story. I haven't, like, nothing weird or terrible has happened to me in the last 18 months. And he was like, you don't have one story left. And I was like, well, there was that one time in 2001 when I got shipwrecked and he actually smacked himself in the forehead and he was like, Mishka, you asshole. That's the story. You know, so I had written the narrative of my experience getting shipwrecked in the Bahamas and getting rescued by the Coast Guard. And, but it was, it, it was just, it was too long and not long enough. Had you tried to like submit it places or? Send it in somewhere. I think I thought about it. <laughs> you know, I was just at that point, I was so defeated. You know, it had sat on my hard drive for like ten years, and and also, and it was also, it was, you know, it was like a, a, you know, it was like a pebble lodged in my heart because I had this bizarre, transformative experience of confronting my own mortality there on the beach. You know, and just being like, "This is it, dude. You are going to die. It's coming for you now." And then I was rescued. But I had no way of redeeming that experience by sharing it with other people because there was just there was no outlet for it at that time. You know, so it, the story was basically ready. So I, um, you know, sort of put a little more work into it. Dave gave me some, you know, some edits and then we published it. And I was like, you know, I hope I make 500 bucks. And to date, I think I've made like $50,000 from it, which it's is insane phenomenal it's just it and it was life transforming money you know i mean i remember getting my first check from amazon and going into my boss at beauty bar uh mike stewart one of my oldest and dearest friends were you and, like you were working the door or manager? I, I, yeah sort of night manager yeah. uh one step up from fry cook you know <laughs> if they had a kitchen at beauty bar i would have been a fry cook <laughs> It, it was it was a pity job. It was like, well, can we find something for this jerk to do? And I was like, yo, Mike, I quit. And he was like, why? And I was like, yo, look at this check, man. Like, ah! It was insane. But that wasn't even the most popular one. Like, what, the long run was more, yeah. sold more, right? The, the, my, it was on number one for forever. Everything would change on the top 10 bestseller list, but that would be number one. Maybe you should describe a little bit what that story is about. Well, I mean, the the long run was a story that Dave that I didn't want to write, that I had no confidence that it would, you know, survive. Do you see a theme coming here of <laughs> me getting every single thing totally wrong? Not everything. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so Dave wanted me to write the story about how I stopped drinking without rehab or AA, and then started running and became an ultra runner and sort of turned my life around. Ultra runner, um, meaning for people who don't know, you uh, run races that are like in excess of twenty six point two miles, which is a marathon. I ran, uh, I did a marathon on New Year's Day this year, just to sort of like you know start the year off the on the right foot. I did uh, forty one miles a couple weeks ago. My longest is sixty two miles. You know, which in that circle is nothing. Yeah. But to the layperson, you can live on you know parliaments and cocaine and PBR. And also if you're not living that way and if you're treating your body in a different manner entirely, you can run 50 miles. Hmm. But so I wrote this story of the long run and I was convinced that it was so dark and so filthy and so humiliating that it would destroy my fledgling career as a writer. But again, you know, I felt like 
this is the truth. This is what really happened. This is what the process was like. I'm just going to write it down. I'm going to send it to Dave. Dave's the one who made the decision to send it out to the world. And uh, the response was overwhelming. You know, two days after it published, it leapfrogged over Dean Koontz and Stephen King to hit number one. I was I was up in New Hampshire, and it was um, we'd had a blizzard, and I was supposed to run the Cape Cod Marathon that day. And I was like, oh, man, no way am I going to be able to make it there. And I turned on my phone, and I saw that, and I was like, holy shit. And I ran my fastest marathon ever that day. I was like, ah! Did people you know? in that community read it? Ultra marathoners read oh, it? Oh, yeah. It would not go away to the point where like, it, it rocketed up to number one, and then it sort of went down to number nine and I was and I was relieved I was like okay finally this thing like my life will go back and then it went back up to number one and stayed there for longer than it had on the first time what kind of response did you get I mean people don't know I mean a lot of people that may not even know Kindle singles don't realize that there's this audience yeah yeah of that size for it you know it's not on the internet it's not available for free on the internet anywhere right it's just yeah. like solely people who are purchasing a copy of this for their Kindle yes and uh, I mean I feel obligated to point out that it it's available on any platform now, any smartphone, any tablet, any, if you can get online, you can get the Kindle app and you can read the story. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I got, uh, I got emails from, a, you know, a 14 year old Mormon who read it and it spoke to her, you know, to people in their sixties, Republicans, uh, drug addicts, heroin users, people who had fought, uh, eating disorders, incest, just people who had been through an entire range of terrible things or people who had been through nothing like it, but it spoke to everybody. Why do you think that is? I think it's because I wrote it the way that I did, just totally raw, without scrubbing it or polishing it or, or taking out any of the stuff that I was like, no, that's too much, you know? Just leaving in, you know, all the, the gritty details. The Nobody ever goes to the bathroom in the movies. <laughs> all the parts of human existence that are scrubbed from a movie, you know. You know, I got a hug from a guy in Phoenix, you know, a month ago. And he was like, yeah, reading the long run got me sober. I've been sober for three years now. Or like a friend of mine just did this, you know, 135-mile race in in January in, in Illinois carrying an 80 pound sled and he was like yeah the long run is what showed me that that was possible I didn't write it to inspire people I you know if you want inspiration if you know go look at memes it was just this is how I survived this is what I did this is how I did it and the people who are in who are in there as far as I could tell I didn't I might have missed it but I didn't see anything about names that names were changed some names have been changed in this, and, oh, okay. I, and I struggled with that because I want everything to be absolutely true. Right. I want every detail to be true. I mean, if I humiliate myself in the book, it's because I humiliated myself in my life. It's the role of a memoirist to give up your own secrets and protect the secrets of others. You know, there's a lot in here that involves other people and out of deference to them and to their privacy in an age where we have no privacy. I said, I made the decision that, you know, there are some, the camera will cut away mm -hmm. at this part, you mm -hmm. know, not for myself. I, I, I refuse to spare myself any humiliation, but my friends, my family, I had to change names or, or change some details and stuff like that. You know, also a lot of this book is about the shooting and the aftermath of the shooting. And a lot of it is about my father. And those are two subjects that I had less than zero interest in writing about. But I found that, you know, when you're writing fiction, it's, it's like, uh, it's like building Legos or it's like building a house out of matchsticks. You know, you're, you're constructing this thing and you, um, you place each block or you place each matchstick and you, you assemble your structure. Nonfiction is more akin to carving a huge block of wood. Wood has, you know, sort of warps and it has a grain and it wants to go a certain way. And as I was writing this book, I realized that my relationship with my father and how I was affected by the shooting played a huge role in why I drank and how I drank and how I felt about myself and how I interacted with my world 
this is the last book that I wanted to write. I, I, you know, I never wanted to write this, but I, the more that I shied away from it, the more that I was like, no, go in, go in that dark corner. That's where you need to go. And I'm so glad I did. Did you look at other memoirs? Did you have any templates or anything that you were reading while you were writing it? Or did you try to avoid similar stories to try to stay away from tropes that might exist in an addiction memoir or something like that? Yeah, I, I was, um, I, I read a couple memoirs right away and then I was like, I'm not going to read any other memoirs because I don't want to, you know, people are always like, oh, you should write a screenplay. I'm like, you know, anything with a formula, you know, where there, you have to hit this mark, you have to hit that, you know, the hero's journey, all that. I, I want to throw all of that out. I, I like to exist with the fiction that, that my life is individual and that my story is specific. And if I see it in terms of it being formulaic, then it sucks all the magic out of it. Zach Lopez, the singer from my old band, knows nothing about music. And every time we would sit down to work on a song together, it was like black magic for him, where he was like, you know, there, then there's that one part that keeps repeating. I was like, yeah, the the chorus, yeah, <laughs> you know. But each time it was a new miracle to him, you know, that he, oh, wow, I, I can't believe that other part's coming around again, and I know when it's coming, you know. And so, and there was, so there was, uh, there was terror and there was delight for him in that process. And so, I want to preserve the unknown, you know, in for myself in writing this, and 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 not see it as you know your outline and your plot points. But this is my life. This is this is what ha this happened and. And then that happened and then this happened and then that happened when you started having the the kindle singles that were that were successful and people were reading them and then you were able to quit your job so now you're making a living as a writer did that change your feeling about sitting down to write did you suddenly feel a pressure to okay now now i have to produce like now this is i'm relying on this or what was the what was the sort of feeling? Because you went through so many years of like flirting with that idea, I mean, you got an MFA from Columbia for God's sake, and then yeah. and then like you hit it, like you hit the jackpot, kind of. And then yeah. what did that feel like when you actually sat down to do the next one? I tried to just throw all that stuff out, any expectation, any affectation. When I write, I want it to be the experience of being deathly afraid of snakes and being deathly afraid of drowning and deathly afraid of darkness. And I want writing to be the experience of getting a swimming pool full of snakes, turning out the lights and jumping in where you just, you just get in there, get in that bad place and write your way out. And the minute that I find myself changing what I'm writing for, oh, well, maybe the Amazon crowd, won't, that's when I stop writing. And also, I'm a hard-headed dude. And <laughs> the minute that somebody expects me to do something, I'm like, no, nah, all right, fuck you. I'm going to do this other thing. <laughs> you know, So that long-winded thing I just gave you about art, that also that serves my hard-headedness <laughs> conveniently well. You know, like... Oh, what's the next book going to be? Well, it's going to be a record. Yeah. You know? Well, you have a great line in the in the book, which I'm, I'm not going to butcher by trying to say exactly, but it's basically like uh, if you're walking down a, a dark road in the forest in the middle of the night and uh, a car pulls up next to you and it has like a nasty looking guy in it and you can either sort of like get in with that person or keep walking, like the safe thing to do is probably to keep walking. But your choice is always to jump in there because that's where the story is. Like the story is inside of yeah. that car. And it made me think sort of back to what maybe you were thinking when you sat down with Dave Blum saying, I don't have any more stories. Like, do you feel like you're still making new stories? Like what, as someone who writes a lot about themselves, do you feel like you're finding new things to write about or you you might stop writing about yourself and like start writing about something else? Mm -hmm. I've thought about this a lot. Um, I do the stupid things I do to entertain myself, you know, and then sometimes I write about them and sometimes I don't, you know, I, I, I think I initially started writing songs just to comfort myself and like, I didn't play them for anybody else. It was just to keep my, you know, to find a way to externalize my, uh, you know, whether it was a grief or a stupid crush or something like that. You know, I just felt a need to create, to get it out there. I definitely don't create 
dramatic situations in order to have something to write about for my next Kindle single or my next record or my next book or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But I absolutely believe in narrative and I believe in the transformative power of story. And I believe that, you know, in the words of Stanhope, uh, you know, boredom is a disease worse than cancer. If you have one of those nights where you go out and you meet up with your friends at a bar that you like and you have a good time and the food's good and everybody enjoys their night and then you go home, that's the worst story ever. It's <laughs> terrible. It's, it's just there's nothing to it. But, you know, if uh, your best friend punches you in the throat, that's terrible. But that's the story. That's it's you know you'll remember that one. Yeah. yeah, and that's you know I mean it's a double edged sword because you know the um, I remember thinking like when I got was shipwrecked I was like I'm gonna fucking die here I'm I'm 24 years old I'm gonna die and and no one will miss me and I'm never gonna see my mother again and then the guy with the boat came around the corner and my first thought was man, this is going to be one hell of a story. <laughs> you know, I can't wait to get to the bar. I'm not going to pay for a drink for the rest of the summer because of this stupid story. The book's not even, it's about to come out. So what are your sort of like, what are you anticipating in having this book out? Like what, what happens next for you? Uh, I, I anticipate nothing. Um, I, I mean, it, it comes out March 8th. Um, I don't think I'm going to be a different person on March 9th than I am on March 7th. I have a little tour right after this, you know, going down to uh, to Doug Stanhope's for Super Bowl and then come back. And then I start touring on March 8th. I'm doing 40 shows in 40 days across the country. I have a day off. Then I go to the UK. I'm doing uh, two weeks over there for my record label, Invisible Hands Music come back i have a day off and then i go teach at yale for uh for three weeks well you might be the first person to uh follow that particular path yeah p packing for that trip is going to be i'll i will pack my nicest t-shirts for yale <laughs> <laughs> oh i guess we should clarify that's a music tour if, well it's, are you gonna it's, do readings also yeah i mean that's the thing is that you know people are you know people are always like oh what are you are you a musician or are you a, a comic or are you a storyteller or are you a writer i'm like is your brain that compartmentalized that you can't understand that i can do a couple of different when when you eat dinner do you just eat cauliflower no you have a couple of different things right you Most know of the time <laughs> so the tour will be um i'll be playing shows i'm playing with star anna who is another uh you know incredibly talented songwriter and i'll be telling uh you know bleak depressing stories from my life in between songs and uh you know in some places i'll be doing readings before uh the shows I, I like blurring the lines. It, it will, you know, it'll be always be a little bit of everything. Here, I was listening to some music while I was reading the book, um, which the, your latest album is a very good companion to reading the book. But it made me wonder, what is it like playing these songs? Some of which are are about drinking, as a sober person. Like they're dark songs, just as it's a dark book. It's incredibly complex, and there are there are certainly nights where I feel like um, I'm putting my mouth, you know, my head in the lion's jaws because playing those songs and singing those songs in front of people, I really feel like I'm transported right back to to where I was then, you know, when I was writing those songs, and you know, and then uh, feel like I'm gonna walk off stage, and uh, you know, bartender, give me one of everything, you know. I don't really have a desire to drink anymore. I miss drinking, but I, I have no desire to go back to it. I, I, you know, I remember fondly the times when I was being an idiot, but I, I don't, I don't want to repeat it. And, you know, in the first tour I did singing these songs was in, incredibly tricky and sort of emotionally complex for me. But, but what I realized at the outcome is these are my fucking songs. I wrote them. I lived the stuff. I own these songs. They don't own me. I'm in control now for the first time in my life. I'm in control. And I'm happy to get up there and sing those songs for my sober people who have responded to the long run and, and that it spoke to them. I'm happy to sing those songs for my people who are still out there drinking. 
I don't think alcohol is particularly evil. I think it's more like uh, like peanut butter, where for some for some people it's food, and for me it's poison, you know. And um, but I've really been having a blast. It's it's ironic at thirty eight to have your tw- your dream at twenty five come true. It's like I've I've kind of outgrown this, but also. I've been a man child for a long time. I guess I can stretch it out for another another eight months or so. Being juvenile has never been a struggle for me. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to ask you was I feel like it's a quality of a good memoir that I got to the end of it and just and I, I felt like I when I saw you I wanted to ask you like how's your family? Like how's your how's your how's your how are your parents doing? Everybody's doing great. My mom is uh my mom is bouncing around Southeast Asia again. You know, since you know moving out to California, I've been able to re- really reconnect with her and my sister. I, I live in a camper in in my sister's backyard right now. My camper is you know not far from my mother's. So you so, really are living the high uh, the author's life now. Yeah, yeah. Author money is like getting paid in Italian lira. You know? <laughs> <laughs> my relationship with my dad is is killer. You know, the last message that I have from my dad on my phone is "I love you too." And uh, the last time that I saw him, I was out at his place when passing through on tour. And when we were saying goodbye, I said, Dad, you know that every time I come to see you, there's I have something for us to talk about. And he was like, oh, I, I know. I've, I've been ready and waiting for it. And I said, well, I don't have anything this time. I, you know, I just, I just wanted to tell you that I love you. And he said, Mishka, I read the book. I know. You know, and then the violins came up (laughs) and then the the beautiful pink and orange clouds and then a meme appeared. (laughs) I think we're going to leave it there. I think that's a A line to walk on. Yeah, why not? (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Evan, thanks for having me. That's it for this week's long form podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to my guest. Mishka Shubali. Uh, his book is coming out shortly. It's called I'll Swear I'll Make It Up to You. He also has an album out called Coward's Path. You can check out both of them at various stores and also his website. Thanks to my co-host Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. As always, thanks to our wonderful editor Jenna Weiss-Berman. Thanks to our intern Courtney Harrell and to our sponsors MailChimp and Audible. That's it for now. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.